Hello, I'm David Lee, and welcome to the latest episode of the Panmure podcast, Saving Panmure House, brought to you by the Scotsman in conjunction with Adam Smith's Panmure House. Smith, one of Scotland's greatest thinkers, lived for the last 12 years of his life in Panmure House in Edinburgh, where he revised his masterworks, The Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments. He died in the house in 1790. This is the story of the colourful history, the sad decline and the remarkable renewal of Panmure House. One of the central figures in this story is Professor Dame Heather McGregor, who joined Heriot Watt University in 2016. Edinburgh Business School, part of the university, owned Panmure House, but the renovation project had got a bit stuck, as Heather recalls. So I asked the university and they said, oh yes, uh, well there's, there's certainly no work going on and there's no progress either. Uh, and this is actually a house we own in the middle of Edinburgh where we run out of money and we run out of work um, and we don't really know what to do with it, we think we might sell it. And, I, and, and then they said, oh and by the way, it's where Adam Smith used to live. Oh, I couldn't believe it. We'll hear more from Heather later. But let's go back five more years to 2011, when another important figure in the story, Chris Watkins, arrived at Panmure House as the newly appointed project director and was greeted with a rather dismal sight. The word that describes it best was sort of neglected and abandoned. Um, it had been empty for a number of years and had gone through a sort of a mixture of uses which kind of reduced the quality of the property as they went along. The whole place had just been left um, without being looked after at all. It was boarded up. There'd been rain had been coming in. Pigeons had got in. So the modern plasterboard ceilings had collapsed. Um, it was full of full of rubbish. There's some pigeon mess on the upper floors. Um, and the, the basement had been um, beautifully... Um, vandalised and had a whole load of spray-painted slogans on it. So, yeah, it's quite a depressing building to go into. The modern story of Panmure House starts three years earlier, in 2008, when Keith Lumsden, founder and director of Edinburgh Business School, part of Heriot Watt University, as we know, oversaw the purchase of the unused building from the City of Edinburgh Council for £800,000. The purchase was driven by the fact that Keith and the others involved couldn't possibly imagine losing the only surviving home of Adam Smith as it threatened to fall into dereliction. But how did we get to that point? And what do we know about the history of Panmure House? Well, it was built in 1691, close to Canongate Kirk, which had been completed three years earlier, near the bottom of the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, and just a stone's throw from the site of the modern Scottish Parliament. It was built for Lieutenant Colonel George Murray, then gained its name when it was sold to James Maul, the fourth Earl of Panmure in 1696. The Panmure family had an estate in Forfarshire, but like many wealthy families of the time, they wanted a place in the city. Chris Watkins describes why the Panmures came to town. Some of the sort of uh, richer families or more powerful families were keen to get a presence because um, this was before the Act of the Union, so they were keen to have their presence on um, the high street and, and within sort of walking distance of the Palace of Holyrood House. The fourth Earl of Panmure who bought the house was an unusual character. 
a Protestant Jacobite, and was on the losing side in the 1715 Jacobite uprisings, as Chris Watkins explained. The fourth hour was captured at the Battle of Sheriff Muir, and his estates were all forfeited um, then. He, he escaped to, um, and went to Europe, died of pleurisy in Paris in 1723. Um, but following his death, his estates were restored um, to his wife, Margaret, who was the daughter of William Douglas, the Duke of Hamilton. Um, and it was through that route that um, the property then moved into the ownership of the Earl of Dalhousie. And it was the, um, and uh, Smith actually rented the house from the Earl of Dalhousie. But what do we know about the reasons that Adam Smith actually moved to Pamuel House in 1778? It's interesting because he, he was living in Kirkcaldy again. I mean, he, he'd been born in Kirkcaldy, but he'd recently returned from time that he'd spent in um, Glasgow, in Oxford and, and in France. Um, but the main reason really from coming back was that he'd got uh, an appoint he'd been appointed as one of the five commissioners of the customs board and uh, he'd been encouraged to apply for that and was supported uh, in his application by the Duke of Buccleuch. Um, Smith had been the young Duke's tutor in France and, and had remained a friend and advisor throughout the Duke's life. But uh, Smith um, also spent quite a bit of time at, uh, at the Duke's estate in Dalkeith House. And from that, he'd got an annual salary of £600 as commissioner. And that coupled with the £300 annual pension that he'd got from the Duke of Buccleuch, meant that he was, he was pretty well off. And uh, at one point, he actually declared I'm, that he was as affluent as I could wish to be. Um, so the job entailed um, him working up at the city chambers. So Pamio House was ideal for that. Um, and uh, so that's one reason he went there. But another reason was that uh, his his mother, who who was quite old by that stage, but very very devout, um, Margaret Douglas, um, it meant that she could go to Canongate Kirk, which was just a short walk away um, from Pamuel House. So the house also had some really large apartments in it and a library that had been built for the Pamuel family. So there was somewhere there for Smith to put his, his huge collection of books. Uh, and another reason was to entertain, as well as all the meeting places in the old town. Um, Smith's house, especially on the Sunday, um, was kind of renowned as a place to be invited to, to go along and talk about latest events whether it's geology or chemistry or whatever so many of the key figures of the Scottish Enlightenment would go along to um, Smith's Sunday afternoon gatherings in Pamuel House so although he'd been at one point he was thinking of moving into the new town uh, but I think Pamuel House probably just suited him ideally um, and so so that's where he went. Smith's contemporaries at the time included towering Enlightenment figures like Robert Adam, Edmund Burke, Adam Ferguson and James Hutton, who met regularly at Panmuir House to discuss and develop the big ideas of the day. At the same time, Smith was still writing and produced a further four editions of The Wealth of Nations and a further two editions of The Theory of Moral Sentiments while living at Panmuir House. 
but he ordered his unfinished works to be destroyed as his health deteriorated, and he died in Panmure House in 1790. His mother Margaret and cousin Janet Douglas, who both lived in the house with him, had also died within the previous few years, and Smith had been badly affected, as Chris Watkins recounts. Yeah, very sadly, um, Smith was, was really devastated by the death of his mother. It was about 1784 when she died. She, she was in her 90s, quite amazingly, then. Um, and then Smith said at the time, she was one whom I certainly loved and respected more than I ever shall either love or respect any other person. Later, in 1788, his cousin Janet died. She'd been his housekeeper for many years in Pamela House. Um, and he himself was suffering from ill health. Then, in um, 1790, William Smelly wrote, Poor Smith, we must soon lose him. Mr Smith's spirits are flat, and I'm afraid the exertions he sometimes makes to please his friends do him no good. His body is extremely emaciated. But, like a man, he is perfectly patient and resigned. In July, Smith asked his executors to burn his unfinished papers. These amounted to at least 16 volumes, and leaving only a few detached essays. The papers were burnt, and according to Hutton, Smith's mind was so much relieved that he was able to receive his friends in the evening with his usual complacency. He retired just before supper and again, according to Hutton, left his guests with the words, I believe we must adjourn this meeting to another place. And Smith left down into the now demolished north wing of the house and died um, and died that evening. He, he was buried in Cungate Churchyard just across from the house. After Adam Smith died in 1790, Panmure House was still in the ownership of the Earl of Dalhousie and was occupied by the Countess of Aberdeen for a number of years. But during that period, as the 18th century morphed into the 19th, the nature of the whole Canongate area was changing, as Chris Watkins explains. A, a lot of the um, uh, sort of richer families were moving out into the new, new town at that point, and a lot of light industries and workshops were beginning to come into, into the Canongate. So a lot of the older, larger buildings were subdivided. Um, and the, the Pamuel House and the grounds, which were actually quite extensive, were actually purchased by James Blackett and Sons around 1838. Some of the early maps that uh, we've got are, are really good for providing information on the changes to the building. And I think in that 1838 map, you can see how um, Pamuel House has suddenly reduced in size by about 50%. It had been a T-shaped building, and the whole of the sort of half of the northern leg of the building was demolished. Um, and then stables and the iron foundry were built, different workshops were built in what had been um, the garden grounds there. So we know... Um, that it was used as a foundry at that point. Little of the building's history is known for the next century until it was purchased by the Canadian media mogul Roy H. Thompson. He had bought Scotsman Publications in 1952 and became involved in Panmure House as he sought to find favour in Edinburgh society. Dr Ronald Selby Wright, who was the Minister of Canongate Kirk at that time, 
um, persuaded uh, the Scotsman to renovate the house, which is why these works were done in the 1950s, um, and gift it to the Cannon Gate Boys Club. So they moved in there uh, probably around late 1950s after after that work had been done. Some work that was done by um, J. Wilson Patterson, the architect for it, um, and um, stayed with the Boys Club for several years. The Boys Club then moved into newly built premises designed by celebrated architect Basil Spence, very close to Panmure House, and the house itself was then used for a period by Lothian Regional Council before being left empty for several years, until Edinburgh Business School purchased it from its then owners, the City of Edinburgh Council, in 2008. EKJN architects, specialists in historic conservation work, were taken on later in 2008 to work on the project. John Newey, the co-founder of EKJN with Ed Kelly, worked on Panmure House right through to its completion in 2018. He recalls that the changes to the property in the 1950s had left it with a very specific look and not one that married with the legacy of Adam Smith, for sure. And the big renovation work was in the 1950s um, and uh, typical of, of, of post-war um, ideas um, in those days, uh, architects and and developers weren't very interested in 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 pre-war history. So uh, it was quite normal in those days to rip out all of the all of the um, historic features uh, and replace them with things that were were new and modern and fresh at the time. Uh, and of course, attitudes have changed quite a lot over the over the past few decades. And so we now look at what they did in the 1950s. Um, and, uh, and and it seems pretty horrific to us, although it was normal at the time. Um, so the kind of things we needed to do, the, the chimneys had been removed, the, the windows had been removed and replaced with modern um, alternatives. Uh, all of the internal finishes had gone. It was wood chip wallpaper. It was, uh, it was lino on the floors. It was formica on the desktops. Um, all very 1950s. There was also a lot of archaeological work that had to be done in and around the site. Little of significant interest was found in the house itself, lots of clay pipes, but the surrounding area was more interesting, as John Newey recalls. Around the outside of the building, um, the sorts of things they were finding were, were kilns and wells, um, which suggested that in medieval times this was probably a, a bit of a sort of industrial area, maybe a blacksmithing area, which would be outside the city wall of Edinburgh. Um, so that's the sorts of things they were finding. Um, it helped us quite a lot. The, the archaeologists actually ended up doing most of the excavating around the outside of the building, which, which saved us the bother of doing it. As archaeological work and assessments of the state of the building continued, John Newey recalls a wide variety of ideas about how Panmure House should be restored. This meant that about 40 different configurations for the building were considered. The big challenge was the lack of space in the building to house all the ancillary facilities, toilets, kitchens, storage and so on, which meant adding to the existing building in some way, either with a new external structure or by digging out the basement. It seemed reasonable to try and generate as many options as, as we could um, and uh, there were quite a lot of different opinions amongst the client group. So we just kept generating options until, until the best one dropped out at the end. Um, now the, the 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 one that um, that seemed best 
initially was the was the glass box and that's the one that uh, that eventually got planning consent but of course we had quite a difficulty getting um historic scotland to give us listed building consent for that one um their their main um issue was that they we knew we needed to increase the 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 floor space in the building but uh, historic scotland didn't want us to build any kind of extension that would that would um, blank out any of the elevations of the building. So the glass box was a solution to that. It allowed us to, to create extra floor space um, to accommodate the things we needed in the building without actually blanking out the elevations because they would all be visible through the glass box. Um, but that was still a bit of a challenge for Historic Scotland to uh, to approve that. And that's why we ended up going to, to the appeal and to the public inquiry. The plans were eventually given the go-ahead on appeal but by this time, around three years had elapsed. There were to be further delays after Chris Watkins came on board as project director in 2011 to find a building in what he described earlier as a state of neglect and abandonment. Chris had recently retired as director of major projects for Historic Scotland and had worked on a number of properties across Scotland, including the big beasts of Stirling Castle and Edinburgh Castle. However, it was a period earlier in his career that made him particularly interested in Panmure House. One of the first jobs that I had in Edinburgh was working for the uh, what was then the City Architects Department. And uh, I worked on a number of buildings in the old town um, around Blackfriars Street and Coburn Street. Um, and so it felt like a really nice project to get involved in. I knew the building anyway, and it was one that has uh, been on the register of buildings at risk. It was A-listed. People felt you know, it would be excellent for it to be properly restored. So um, I eventually had a, a meeting with Keith Lumsden, and uh, we seemed to get on well together. And uh, so I, uh, I I decided to take on, on the challenge of trying to a help raise the funds for it, but also to to, to um, restore the building. Despite the lengthy and rocky passage to gaining planning permission for the glass box proposal, Chris Watkins was not convinced this was the way ahead. He also wasn't sure there was a clear enough vision of exactly what the building would be used for. There had been a vision to to have it as a living memorial, but it wasn't hadn't been that well fleshed out. And so the first part was really to spend quite a lot of time with Keith and other people who who were actively involved in the charity that Keith had set up um, to try and um, work out okay what what do we actually want to do in the building, and then how can the building best provide the accommodation for it? it the the scheme that approved. Um, was a very bold scheme with a big glass box with a, a spiral staircase in it to provide access. I mean, and it, the, the building needed a staircase for sure. I mean, you, the timber one was was completely inadequate, um, but it didn't fully address all of the other issues. And so, and I, I also felt that the elevations that existed of the building it was kind of a shame to hide those behind glass. So um, eventually we abandoned the, the idea of the glass box and external stair and um, created the additional accommodation by, by digging down, um, underpinning the building um, and creating sufficient space for kitchens, toilets, um, plant room, uh, a reception area and so on. Bringing Pamio House back to life was not just about digging out the basement. 
there was a huge amount of work done to understand and ensure its renovation was done sympathetically in a way that reflected the era when Adam Smith lived there. We did a major survey of the stonework um, of the building, um, which involved inspecting the, all of the elevations and chimneys. Um, the whole building needed repointing. All of this, all of the hard cement um, mortar that had been put in during the 1950s needed to be taken out. There's always a delicate um, decision about whether you replace a stone um, or whether it's structurally sound enough to continue for and have a life of another 50 or 100 years. So, you know, ideally one tries to keep as much of the original stonework as possible, because that's obviously part of its history. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to leave stones in place that are only going to have to be replaced in maybe five or ten years time, or that are likely to cause bigger structural problems. One of the biggest breakthroughs came when the team went into the roof, as Chris Watkins recalls. During the archaeological investigations, once we stripped out all the plasterboard and revealed the roof timbers, uh, it became apparent that the roof timbers were actually original. And as was common at that time, the trusses um, had got Roman new numerals carved into them. So a whole sequence of numbers um, running up to something like 60, but not starting until... I think it was number 34 was the first number. That also gave us uh, you know, further proof that the building had been quite a lot larger and actually almost gave a means to assess how much larger it would have been. And the fact that we'd only probably got slightly less than half of the original building still. So those timbers needed, some of them got some wet rot in and uh, needed some structural um, support on. So... The original timbers were either um, repaired or strengthened in order to be re uh, retained. So we were able to keep all of the timbers that were there. We're getting a picture here of a very complex piece of work. Digging out the basement and underpinning the building, understanding the history of Panmure House and how that affects the renovation, working out what could stay and what had to go, trying to fix the architectural vandalism of the 1950s, and with so many different people involved and a variety of options on what should happen next, not to mention the constant need for more funding, by 2016 the project had become stuck, as we heard from Heather McGregor at the start of this podcast. There was no real certainty what would happen next, until a force of nature arrived in the form of Heather McGregor to breathe new life and a little fire into the project. Eight years had passed since Keith Lumsden oversaw the purchase of the building when Heather was appointed Executive Dean of Edinburgh Business School in September 2016. I spoke to her after a lecture at Panmure House in April 2023 to celebrate the tercentenary of Adam Smith's birth, delivered by the renowned economist Baroness Minouche Shafiq. She is now head of the London School of Economics but will soon move to the United States to become the first female president of Columbia University in New York in its almost 300-year history. After the lecture by Baroness Shafiq, Heather McGregor recalled in detail how she first found out about Pamir House. 
I was approached to lead uh, the business school of Harrier Watt University, and in those days, that was a postgraduate-only business school. It had a big distance learning education program. It was one of Scotland's greatest educational exports. These were the things that were attracting me to the job. Then I got hold of a copy of the accounts, and in the balance sheet, there was a three million pound work in progress. I was like, well, what's this? So I asked the university, and they said, oh, yes. Uh, well, there's, there's certainly no work going on, and there's no progress either. Uh, and this is actually a house we own in the middle of Edinburgh, where we run out of money, and we run out of work, um, and we don't really know what to do with it. We think we might sell it. And, I, and, and then they said, oh, and by the way, it's where Adam Smith used to live. Oh, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, when I had to come back for my final interview, I marched my family down here and round the outside of it. I, I was like, if I get this job, I get this. And it, it, it was, and then I thought, if I don't do something with this, it's going to sit on my desk and drive me mad. Heather quickly realised it wasn't just about the money, but getting the doubters to believe. So I spent my first hundred days making sure that. You know, we could restart this project at Harriet Watt. And, and, and that, a lot of that actually it wasn't so much about the money, you know, it was hearts and minds. It was about getting people to realise that if we did finish the project, that it would become what it has become, which is a centre of extraordinary debate about the future challenges of the world. And I think getting everybody to believe in that, the money was almost, I mean, yes, we were very fortunate to raise the money to finish it and more importantly to establish it as, as a place of thought leadership and scholarship um, but it, it was more the belief the hearts and minds and so when when was that Heather and how long did it take to really get the project moving and to unlock it when did you arrive oh literally I arrived on the 1st of September at work the principal the vice chancellor brought me down here on the 2nd first time I'd been inside it was derelict I had to wear a hard hat there was rubble everywhere. The only way to climb up to the next floor was on a ladder. And he said, I want this sorted out. Okay? And we broke ground on October the 16th. So it took me 45 days. What year was that? 2016. 2016. And then we finished it. That, we actually finished and opened to the public in the summer of 2018. But the, for those 45 days, you know, I, spent, I said, I, I really did nothing else. I... I spent 45 days going, okay, because we, we, we already had done planning, and we had got we had got a contractor spec and everything. It's just that there wasn't the money, there wasn't the will, there wasn't the commitment, there wasn't the agreement of our trustees to proceed. So those were the things I worked on for 45 days. And what was it in terms of convincing people to say those hearts and minds? What really, what did you say to people? to really start putting some oomph back into the project? I think this was a unique opportunity for the university. I just thought, this is one thing that we could do that nobody else can do. And how wonderful it would be to, that this would really set us apart. So I, I talked to everybody I could about the uniqueness of the opportunity and how it would set us apart. And you're pleased how it turned out, particularly when you're here on a night like this. This, this has, it is, the project has exceeded my wildest dreams, actually. Thanks to, of course, uh, an army, you know, there's, they always say there's no I in team, and I always think uh, that there's no such sentence as I can't do it. 
in order to complete that sentence, you have to use the word alone. And uh, it was through the efforts of lots of people who rallied to my cause, who helped. Because even after getting the agreement to finish the physical building, there then had to be a vision of what we would do with it. And somebody had to believe that one day, Baroness Minush Shafiq would speak in the 300th anniversary of Adam Smith's birth in this house on the eve of her departure to Colombia to be its first ever female president, a university that was founded when Adam Smith was still alive. So I think that, you know, that is beyond my wildest dreams. You know, it, it is a, gr a great pride to me that I was able to be associated with the project. And of course, you know, I stand on the shoulders of the giants. When we bought the house, in 2008, of course I had nothing to do with the university. My own Vice-Chancellor, Richard Williams, believed in me, that he hired me to do this. And, and his belief in me made me doubly committed to doing it. And how does this compare the achievement here to what else you've done in your career? I think this is probably the highlight of my entire professional career. I hope to have contributed to something that will serve Scotland uh, and the people of Scotland for, you know, generations to come. Just six months later, Heather McGregor met someone who shared her passion for the physical and intellectual renewal of Panmure House, someone who became a key figure in this story. Caroline Howitt subsequently became Programme Director of Panmure House and had a very personal connection to Adam Smith, as she explains. So I first became aware of the Panmure House project in 2017. And I met the wonderful Heather McGregor at an International Women's Day event. Um, and we got talking about this project and um, she told me she was restoring the, the final remaining home of Adam Smith. And I said, well, that's fascinating. Um, I actually held the same scholarship as Adam Smith. Um, we both uh, went to Glasgow University as undergrads and then uh, took the Snell Scholarship a very ancient um, endowed scholarship over to Balliol College, Oxford to undertake postgraduate study. And so of course, when she heard this, she said, well, you need to come and help me on this project then. And, and the, the rest has been history, really. Caroline immediately sensed the huge potential of Panmure House. The first time I visited Panmure House, it was a hard hat area. So it, it was it was not finished. Um, but you could feel the magic of the place already. You could see the, the potential. I formally came on board in 2019 to be programme director. So this is when the physical restoration of the building had been completed, but um, there was a need to really kickstart the intellectual restoration of the house at that point, because of course we are not a museum. Um, we're a, a living, breathing monument to Smith and his ideals and his methods. Um, and, and a huge part of our job is to uh, redress the ways in which his legacy has been interpreted and to try and get businesses and governments to um, go back to basics, uh, take a more philosophical approach in the way that Smith did um, and to apply those, those thoughts and, and methods here in the 21st century in a practical sense. Caroline talks there about the physical restoration of the building being complete when she came on board. But let's take a step back and talk some more about the work that went into getting there, about the team effort described by Heather McGregor, and how that team effort made Panmure House the beautiful building it is today. 
John Newey and Chris Watkins both pay tribute to the contractors who did some of the most physically tough work, digging out the basement to create the extra space the building needed. The, the head height in the basement before we started was about, uh, about a metre and a half, so they had a lot of digging to do. Uh, they had a lot of underpinning to do. Um, some parts of the original building were, were founded directly onto the bedrock and some parts were not. So in some areas we were digging out rock and in other areas we were underpinning down to the rock. So it was a serious piece of engineering work to, to, to excavate a full depth basement there and, and to, to tank it to make it waterproof um, without damaging the, the standing structure above. So you're basically putting another building in underneath the existing one whilst making sure that the existing one doesn't collapse. And we did it in two phases. Um, and the brilliant contractor and some brilliant guys were working on it as well, um, who, um, yeah, worked away in, in unpleasant conditions, to be quite honest, because the, the, the original basement was quite small, so you, you haven't got a lot of space there. And all the material had to be taken out by hand as well while they were doing it. Even when the basement was dug out to create that extra space, there was a huge amount to be done inside the building too. As we've already heard, renovations over time, especially in the 1950s, had not been kind to Panmuir House. Chris Watkins again. There'd been a number of massive brick walls um, built to subdivide the building in the 50s as well. We needed to bring those down in order to recreate the original room proportions. So quite a lot of internal demolition work. And in doing that, we had to make sure that the building itself um, was still structurally sound because these walls had been used to bond together the old um, original walls. So as they came down, we inserted steel work to help tie together the, the original external walls of the building. Because of uh, the need to have good sound insulation as well, um, we wanted to, to make sure that the, that the floors could provide that, especially as the plan was to use um, the rooms for different purposes at the same time. So we needed clear sound separation. So in order to keep the proportions of the rooms, but also to get the sound insulation and to get the structural integrity of the building, we decided to use concrete floors. How did you go about trying to select uh, the look of the building to give it some sense of how it would have looked at the time of Smith? Yeah, we just decided as part of the sort of conservation um, approach of the building was to go back to a period probably not back to when the building was originally built, because we think there were some changes made, but to a point before Smith had um, uh, taken up occupancy of it. So um, we then researched the type of panelling that was um, prevalent at that time, um, and also looked at different uh, stone stairs. We were pretty certain it would have been a stone stair. Anyway, we decided to put in a, a, a stone stair um, and but we wanted to keep the apartments um, that would have originally existed during Smith's time in place. So fortunately, we were able to do that and to create a space there where we could put in a new stone flat stair. Although there wasn't much information about how the house would have looked in the time of Smith to help the team with some of the final details, 
there were a few clues, as Chris Watkins remembers. We were lucky in part of the internal ex, uh, archaeological investigations. We came across the site of some of the stair of, of some of the original fireplaces. Um, so that gave us quite a lot of clues about the um, original size of the rooms and how much of the space they actually occupied. So quite a few clues in the building itself as well as to how it might have been panelled. And um, obviously the windows were a, a, a very strong original element, the window openings. So that gave a kind of pattern to the rooms. So it's quite a lot of information we could pull in from the building itself in order to define um, how, um, how we went ahead. And John Newey explains how the team did their best with the limited information available. There was never really any um, intention to recreate something that had existed before. What we were all about was creating spaces and rooms and using materials that might have been familiar to the, the people that lived there and during Adam Smith's time. Obviously, we could have done timber panelling using MDF and modern paints, but that wasn't really what we were trying to do. So the, the timber panelling in all the rooms is, is tulip wood, uh, which uh, was a traditional material, and it's used because it has a, a, a very low amount of movement with heat and moisture. Um, the, the paints then, we used uh, quite a lot of paints from a company called Rose of Jericho, which are, are traditional paints. Um, and we did some good research into the kinds of traditional colours that would have been available um, in the 18th century and the kind of colour palettes that that would have been in a building of this status. Um, in those days, different colours uh, came at different prices, depending on uh, on what pigments were in them and how easy those pigments were available. So, uh, yeah, and there was quite a lot of research went into all of that to try and uh, um, keep it as accurate as possible, trying to be faithful to the products and materials and colours and standards that, that they would have had at the time. The same level of effort was applied to the outside of the building, again recognising it wasn't possible to recreate 18th century stone and slate perfectly. John Newey again. I think the the stone walls of of the the original structure um they'd been altered quite a lot in the 1950s there's a lot of brick in there behind the stone um but where where the stonework is is definitely original um we think even then it's probably recycled stone in the first place possibly recycled from buildings that were on the site before Panmure House so trying to match that stone with something new um very difficult um, there are some quarries uh, in Scotland still active that can provide similar stone, and we and we we accessed that where we could. Um, the the mortar between the stones we had that analysed, um, and mostly it was sand that came from beaches um, on the north coast of of, um, of Scotland. Uh, you can't just go to beaches these days and dig up sand to to make mortar. So we had to do the best we could to to match that as closely as we could with something something similar. Uh, and the roof slates as well. There, there are there are currently no um, active slate quarries in Scotland. So um, where we could, we sourced reclaimed Scotch slate um, and and used that on the roof. Uh, and it was quite a challenge to make sure we'd got a sufficient supply of of single source matching slate to to do what we needed to do up there. So was John happy with how the building worked out? 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's all worked very well and it all seems to keep working well. Um, we managed to squeeze into the house all of the modern equipment that's needed for a modern conference centre. Um, I think the, the main entrance foyer has worked very well with the display um, related to Adam Smith. Um, I think it's quite a nice counter to the to the more traditional spaces of the original building, and of course the Penchek stair, um, which uh, which is quite a quite a major feature um, uh, of the building now that it's finished. Chris Watkins is also delighted to have been part of such a special project. Yeah, I mean it's 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 obviously a great delight to go down there and see the whole project completed. It, it wasn't an easy project by any means, and it had a. A, a, a long history um, and a lot of difficulties before it was actually completed. So I'm very pleased with the way it's turned out. And Caroline Howitt is full of praise for the way the architects blended the old and the new. They've done a great job of, of blending the attention to 18th century detail and the kind of modernity that's required for today's audiences. So, um, it, you know, we have a beautiful Penchek stone staircase, which is very um, fitting for 18th century, but we also have a, a disabled access lift. Uh, there's gorgeous tulip wood panelling running throughout the house, but behind that panelling you'll find big 92-inch television screens. So it's this beautiful blend of the historic and the modern, um, and it's all really designed to make Adam Smith and his legacy much more accessible to a wider audience here in the 21st century. Yeah, there are uh, lots of lovely things that um, might not be obvious on first visit to the house, but which... Um, which really undergird the kind of attention to detail that's been paid by, by our architects and that speak a little bit to our mission as well. So as you walk through the house, for instance, there are quotes from Smith that are almost translucent, but placed on certain walls. It'd be easy to miss them, but they're there. And I love that kind of attention to detail. It really gives the house a subtext. Um, and that subtext is that nuance and detail matter. And you'll see that as well throughout our programming and in terms of what we're trying to um, reintroduce into public discourse as well. The lessons of our ancestors are all around us if we care to, to stop and read them and apply them. In 2018, 10 years and £5.6 million since Edinburgh Business School purchased the building, Pamio House was finally opened by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, like Adam Smith, a son of Kakodi. It's been a long, complex haul to get there, but five years on, the project is thriving, and Caroline Howitt is determined that the spirit of Smith and his contemporaries will be deployed at Pamio House to consider modern-day challenges in a respectful and nuanced way? Well, I think as time has gone on, um, debates have become more polarised, not less. You know, back in the back in the Scottish Enlightenment, when Smith was convening people here at Panmere House, um, there were lots of different disciplines coming together to solve problems. Um, the state of public discourse now is very different from how it was then. People used to pay a, a lot of attention to the detail and nuance of arguments and public discourse was, while often heated, ultimately respectful of one another's views. And I think we've seen a move away from that um, largely through the rise of social media um, and, and the way certain pockets of the media report things. And so I think that has in particular given 
people an appetite to return to a more respectful and, and nuanced form of debate. And that, that's a large part of what we're here to uh, produce. And Caroline is determined that the eyes of the world will focus on Panmure House in the tercentenary of Adam Smith's birth. Well, the 300th birthday of Adam Smith is, is a very important year for us, not just from a celebration perspective, but from a kind of step change in our project as well. Um, so we've just welcomed Professor Adam Dixon, who is our inaugural Adam Smith Chair in Sustainable Capitalism. And our hope is that he and his team will really pick up where Smith left off um, and produce research here at the cusp of the fourth industrial revolution in much the same manner as Smith and his contemporaries did at the, the very dawn of the first industrial revolution. The other thing that we always say is that London has Chatham House, Edinburgh has Panmere House. Okay, so that, that's the kind of um, level of international recognition that we're looking for and that I think is very, is very possible for us. So we, we want nothing less than to revive the spirit of the Scottish Enlightenment. And so within the next five years, let's say, I'd like us to be in a position where no great thinker comes anywhere near Scotland without coming here to speak at Panmere House and to get involved with our, our programme and our mission in some way. That mission is well underway, and 300 years since Adam Smith's birth, and more than 230 years since he died at Panmure House, the building is again full of the sound of respectful debate and nuanced conversation about the fundamental issues of the day. Those echoes of the past, in the spirit of the Scottish Enlightenment, are resonating through to modern times. And the thinking of Smith and his contemporaries is as relevant as ever, according to Baroness Minou Shafiq. This is how she concluded her lecture at Panmure House in April 2023 to celebrate the 300th anniversary of Smith's birth. These principles provide the foundation for a society built on recognising our interdependence, enabling everyone to fulfil their potential and asking everyone to contribute as much as they can for the common good. I think this would marry the two halves of Adam Smith's intellectual legacy, the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, in a way that I think he would have thoroughly approved of. Thank you very much. So what next for Pambio House? What's the pinnacle of what it can achieve? We'll give the final word to Heather McGregor. I believe that it has great convening power, Patton House. And by having convening power, I think it transcends politics. It transcends the present. You know, uh, today, uh, Minish was talking about how uh, present emergencies always obscure future decision-making. And we're always too busy in the present to look to the future. And I like to think that when people come here, they can stop... They can think about the long term, they can think about the future of the world. You know, that's what Smith did himself back in this house in the 1780s. And he had all his mates around here at the weekend for meals, so to sit around and debate these long-term things. So this is what I think we can do, and we can convene it in Scotland, which of course has so much to offer the world as it, as it has done for many centuries. That's Dame Heather McGregor ending this episode of the Panmure Podcasts, brought to you by The Scotsman, in partnership with Adam Smith's Panmure House. If you want to find out more about the house, there is loads of information at www.panmurehouse.org. 
please listen out for the other episodes in the series on all your favourite podcast platforms. This episode of the Panmio podcast was presented by me, David Lee, and produced by Andrew Mulligan. Thank you.